All right, well, it is one of the, uh, the favourite parts of, of the conference, an opportunity whereby we can uh, ask some questions of, of our key speaker and, and, uh, and pass the chat as well. It's, it's something that we've looked forward to every year. And again, this year we've had a, another great selection of, of questions. Uh, right off the bat, uh, Star Trek or Star Wars? Is that for me? Either. Star Trek. <laughs> oh, man, really? I'll Seven? go with Star Wars. Hey, praise the Lord. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Ford or Holden? What? Ford or Holden? Does he know what a Holden is? Yeah. I don't even know what that means. Chad? Chevy versus Ford? Oh. Well, my first car was a 66 Mustang. So. No, Ooh, I, nice. I got to go for the Asian cars, man. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Maccas or Hungry Jacks or Burger King here? Maccas. Maccas, really? But the Whopper. Wow, you guys don't have In-N-Out here, right? No. <laughs> I thought you said Chick-fil-A, Chad. <laughs> well, can you give me yeah. the two? Is there a C? Oh, a and B. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Uh, first or second question. Um, Boaz was an older man. Ruth was much younger. If I'm a single guy, how much younger can I go in looking for a wife? Jordan, I thought you were already married. <laughs> Why are you asking this stuff, man? Oh, okay, all right, okay, cool. Okay. <laughs> okay, first real question. <laughs> Sammy, uh, what are some of the challenges that we should be aware of and pray towards as well whilst evangelizing to believers of an Indian origin? You being Indian, um, being many Indian folk in our church, what is, uh, what is something that we should be aware of while evangelizing to believers of... Indian origin. Yeah, and I, you know, just a few things that I might just say is, is first of all, <clears throat> I think there's a lot of commonality, even when you think about uh, Hinduism being the, the dominant religion uh, with false religion, and that is all of them are works-based, and that's the distinction between the true gospel of Jesus Christ and all false religions. So there's there's really only two sides, you know, works-based and Christ-based. Uh, so that again plays into Hinduism with the dogmas that they have. They don't actually have dogmas, uh, but one uh, key thing is the whole idea of karma and how you work yourself. There's no real idea of salvation, but you just work yourself through cycles of reincarnation. So it's, it's really a frustrating cycle. And if you have good karma, then in your next life, you'll be born a cow or something like that. And if you have bad karma, you'll be a cockroach or, you know, kind of in, in some ways. But um, it's just a, a good conversation to go back to the scriptures and don't get into comparing scriptures. Uh, Spurgeon used to say, the word of God is a lion. And so we don't defend the lion. We just let the lion out of its cage and let it roar. And so just begin to use scriptures that would speak to that workspace system of uh, Isaiah 64.6, our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And then even demonstrate that to Hindus through your own life, you know, and your own testimony, uh, that we are not those that walk by our own strength, but we walk in, in grace. I think just one more thing is hospitality is a, a key, key way to just reach out uh, to Indians, which is commanded to us in the Bible anyway, right? But open up your homes to them and allow that. 
Beautiful. On the, on the same topic of, of evangelism and speaking somewhat to our, our conference as well, um, does election in any way cool or, or hinder or does it stifle our evangelism? The doctrine of election or the theology of election, does it, does it cool or, or hinder evangelism? Either one of you guys. You, you want to go? Or? We yeah. both can do it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I think about a doctrine of election, you know, you think about modern missionaries. You know, William Carey, who's called the father of modern missions, Ed Ivan Judson, who went to India and Burma. Uh, you think about um, oh, uh, China. Um, think about his name. Hudson. Yes, Hudson thank Taylor. you, Hudson. Taylor. Yeah, you think about all those guys. I mean, all of those guys were, I mean, to use the term uh, Calvinist, all of them were, were diehard believers in the doctrine of election, and it didn't stifle the, their tremendous ministries that, that God used them in. Um, but more on a personal note, you know, one of the things for me is when I think about 1 Corinthians, and I think about 1 Corinthians, especially chapter 3, where, uh, God, uh, where Paul says, excuse me, that, you know, I said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. When, when you think about God's involvement in salvation, for me, it was such a freeing moment, knowing that, you know, it, it's my responsibility to share the Word of God with others and allow the results to God, that God's going to be working in their hearts. Um, I don't know who's elect. I mean, if it had them written on their forehead, that would be helpful. But, you know, we're, we're told to go out and, and, and be faithful in sharing the gospel with people. And, you know, I, I leave the, the election to God. You know, election is always, in Scripture, it's a comfort for believers. I mean, Peter makes that point in First Peter that, you know, you, the elect of God, they're undergoing persecution. What a comfort it is to know that you're elect. Um, we, and so, you know, when you approach it from a personal standpoint, I, I'm sharing the gospel, I'm faithful and you know, I just kind of leave the results to God in that sense. Yeah, again, I, I, I think rather than cooling evangelism with Hindus, or for that matter, any community, it heats up evangelism. William Carey, again, didn't have a single um, person committing to Christ for, I believe it was 18 years of his ministry, and he didn't give up because he believed that there were elect in our land. Praise God for that. And then he had the first believer come and profess Christ. Um, so it, it, it really enables us to have hope uh, that goes beyond ourselves. I think another thing it liberates us from is, as you were saying, we plant and water, but God causes the growth. And the idea there is we're not results-oriented because we know that God may not show us the results. People might get saved before or after we even see it. And in that way, God gets all the glory. And uh, so we're not into numbers uh, because we know that God will save a people from every tribe and every nation because he will prevail. So it can heat evangelism, give us a great sense of rest in, in his sovereignty. That's, that's, that's a great way of thinking about it. Thank you. Uh, Sammy, uh, how specifically can we, can we pray for India? How can we pray more specifically for your own Ministry, not only at the church in Goa, but uh, but at PTS, your uh, pastoral training centre. Um, uh, is is there prayer needs that, that perhaps you have at the moment uh, for your family as well? Uh, how can we as a people be in prayer for for India as a whole and, and your own mission as a whole? So I'll start with the the seminary, and I would say with the seminary, pray for faithful men, which only God can provide on two levels. Uh, one, in the faculty. Uh, we've been uh, stripped down right now to just me, my dad as adjunct, and we need more 
uh, faithful men from India uh, to be given to us as those that would train men. You know, Second Timothy 2.2. 2. But also pray for faithful men that we can train and continue to send out as foot soldiers, ground soldiers for Jesus Christ. In the last um, 18 years, we've sent out approximately about 100, uh, both to Burma and to India, and we're still scratching the surface. Uh, what is India now? 1.3 billion? Uh, so we need more faithful men. Uh, then also pray <clears throat> for um, what we call kind of an association of Bible churches through our graduates, through the church that we have in Goa, uh, that are like-minded churches around the country, that God would continue to keep them and keep those churches growing and thriving. Um, there has to be not just a seminary, but even churches that will train men and sending out men. So pray for the growth of, of those churches. And then finally, for uh, our family, just pray that God would uh, enable us, uh, as, as ministry gets more busy, to never neglect the priorities of uh, the home and the home fires and discipling our children and loving one another. And it doesn't matter how many years you're in ministry, you can forget that. And so just pray that God would keep us pure even as we do ministry. Um, I love the fact that our children don't hate the ministry. They love the ministry. But just pray that it would continue, uh, that they would see ultimately uh, Christ in us and then follow Christ himself. Fantastic. And you guys are moving home at the moment, is that right? We are moving home, yeah. So you can pray for that as well. I just packed all this stuff and, and it's, it's there now and uh, the unpacking will take uh, another few months so you can pray for us as we settle in a new home that God has provided. Fantastic. Thank you, Sammy. Uh, questions more relating to, uh, to uh, the topic tonight or the, the, today, the conference. Uh, one question we have... Uh, how would you compare the relationship of Boaz and Ruth to the relationships of, of Ephesians 5.25, 1 Peter 3.7? Is the book of Ruth the Old, Twist, Old Testament equivalent of some of those passages? Well, just a couple of things there. I think, again, to just see Ruth as just marriage and romance is, is missing the point. And when you look at the big picture, even the, the bookends, it's about the faithfulness of God and the goodness of God. Within that, part of that is just this beautiful marriage. Um, so don't, don't just... Uh, one of our temptations sometimes is just to focus on things that we like and things that are our favorite topics, but we've got to stick with, I think, the big picture of the book. But when you do see the marriage, and when you see any marriage that is a Christian marriage, and Ruth and Boaz are a Christian marriage, it always reminds you uh, of the fact that uh, there is the ultimate drive in all Christian marriage to point to the relationship that God has with his people. That's what Paul does in Ephesians 5. So I would really say the greater marriage is always Jesus and his church. And one day our marriages are going to fade away because of the blessedness of that marriage. Not because you know we're going to be sad in heaven like, oh no, there's no marriage. But because there's the greater joy of being in intimacy with Christ where nothing else will even compare to that hard as it seems to, to, to be able to imagine. And so we always got to go from the greater to the lesser. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> Should the, uh, the story of Ruth move Christians in the West to be more accepting of, of immigrants? And should we be lobbying the governments perhaps to be pro-immigrant <laughs> in its policies? Uh, you know, this is in relation to 
to the immigrant in the, in the story of, of Ruth coming in from another land? Is that something that, that we as Christians should be more accepting of? It's a good question. I don't know if you want to jump in, but I think the first thing that hits me is uh, as you look at the scriptures, there's a, a clear distinction between the church and the state. And so we just need to be careful of how we think about lobbying and, and getting involved in governmental issues. Uh, as a church particularly, if individuals are involved in the government, then stand out for Christ in the government. There's no problem with that. But the church is an institution that lives in this world to primarily be concerned for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the second instrument that God has ordained, not for the gospel, but just to restrain evil in Romans 13, is the government. And let's not confuse the two. And every time that's gotten confused, you've ended up with problems. Like, for instance, the Dark Ages with the Roman Catholic Church. Um, so let's not repeat those mistakes. Or, or John Calvin in Geneva. That's true. That's yeah. true. The Even the reformers uh, didn't fully reform some of those things. Praise God for the things they did reform. Yeah, um, yeah that's true. Yeah. Oh, no, I was just going to say, I think, too, we, we need to remember that the church is not Israel. You know, with, with the prescriptions for the nation of Israel, they, they would be separate from the nations. And so there, there was a, a point in them not intermarrying because all the nations surrounding them were ungodly and you know, idolatrous. And so, so there's a difference between that. As, as members of the church, we're all goyim, we're all Gentiles. Um, well, well, there's three types of people. There's Jews, Gentiles, and the church. We're made up of Jews and Gentiles. So we're, we're a mixed bag, as it is already. So when it comes to, to immigrants, you know, we submit to the laws uh, of, of whatever state we're in, you know, Australia or um, United States, those things. We submit to the laws of the country, and we, we never want to encourage law-breaking. So in that sense of the laws, this if we feel like it should be changed, then in democratically elected countries, as citizens, we can work within the framework of the government we live to change those laws. Um, now, we'll say that from a, chance, from, from a stance of just immigrants in general, just opportunities for the gospel. You know, whatever community, wherever place we live, doesn't matter. They, they need the gospel wherever they are. They come to us or we go to them either way. So. But let me also say this. That, that just being a caveat, there is a sense of continuing this principle, at least, of caring for those that are destitute, and, and immigrants would be part of that community sometimes, uh, because of commands in the New Testament, like Hebrews 13, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. And the word hospitality in the Greek is literally to entertain those that are you know, outside of our community, those that are not part of our community. It's not just to invite church members over. And it's very, it's very specific, even in those commands. And isn't that something that is, is sometimes the, the very vehicle that God causes to cause people to see Christ and, and to have the gospel uh, born in their lives? And so um, if there's immigrants that don't have homes, as churches we need to make sure that they find homes and, and share with them ultimately not just food, but even the hospitality of Christ. Fantastic. Good one. Again, in relation to, to the story of Ruth, uh, if uh, a wife is to submit to her husband, what does she do when the husband makes a bad decision? Like Elimelech leaving Judah for Moab, for example. Yeah, that's a good question. And again, I would say I, 
uh, I think Naomi was confessing some sin and part of that may have been, may have been, and we can only speculate here, that she could have been more of a godly influence in, and she takes responsibility for that and she doesn't blame him uh, and she says, I was a, as much a part of that. And, and I would just say, um, <clears throat> uh, this submission does not mean that the wife doesn't have a voice and doesn't uh, speak up and even counsel her husband in the privacy of their home. Uh, and I praise God for Nicole and the way in which she's rescued me from trouble multiple times. Um, and there are some things that she's... Let's not pretend that just because we're leaders that means that we know everything about everything. Uh, leaders just means that you're responsible for all the mistakes. Uh, but uh, therefore you want to seek counsel. And you want to seek counsel from the first person you should seek counsel from is your wife. And um, so <clears throat> every couple has different dynamics here. I think that's part of the wisdom of every marriage, of learning strengths and weaknesses of each other. You know, and it can be really fun and interesting sometimes. So what works for one couple doesn't work for all, all other couples. But you learn to have that partnership, but in the end, the man makes the decision and takes the blame for it. Cool. Uh, that's a good point, too. And, and I think you know, when I first hear, you, know, you think about you know, wives, you know, my husband's, husband's leading us in a direction. And, and I think for, for a lot of wives, it's like, well, what if I disagree? And I, I think that's where having that open communication in your marriage is important. I mean, Beth and I... I We've always talked about, like, if it's major stuff, we need to be on agreement, in agreement, excuse me. Um, my wife would tell you that for her, it, it's not all, so much the, the huge things in our lives that are issues for her. It's the daily submission, you know, when she submitted me when I'm not acting like I should, you know, and I'm struggling with whatever, you know, I'm not being a consistent example of Christ to her. And those are the things she, she would tell you she struggles a little bit more than, than the huge things in our life, like moving cross-country to the seminary, moving to, you know, Australia. Those are things that she found it easier to submit to, um, now, that being said, you know, we, we do have an example, and I was thinking about First Peter, where uh, he actually mentions Sarah you know, obeying Abraham, and, and, and Sarah trusted that the Lord would protect her, even through the foolish decisions of her husband. And, and I think that that's an example, or it is an example, of a godly woman knowing that, you know what, we're entrusting God, you're entrusting God to, to take care of you, even in the foolishness of your husband. I had a discussion recently with a pastor in the States, and we were talking about a family who the husband was making so many poor choices financially, but yet God continued to, to I wouldn't say bless that family, but take care of that family. And, and I look at that as an example of, you know, God's providing the means to take care of that family, even through the husband's poor choices, knowing that he has a believing wife and kids to take care of. And so I think ultimately the, the wife has to trust in God and then, you know, especially if her husband is an unbeliever, and then even if not, you trust in the Lord, and, and then you have that open communication with your husband. Fantastic. Is God's sovereignty restricted in this world under the control of the prince of the power of the air, or, or Satan? Basically, what, what's Satan's role, I guess, in, in suffering, uh, and, and is God's sovereignty restricted in any way because of that? Yeah, I think straight off of the book of Job, right? And I think that was why Martin Luther, and he had a kind of mischievous way of saying things, said the, the devil is God's little devil. And what he was, he was saying is, uh, you look at the book of Job, 
And in chapter 1, uh, we, we think sometimes Satan had all this power to go and persecute Job. No, he didn't. He had to go into the throne room of God and ask permission before he even laid a hand on him. And God allowed it. And what that reminds us even then theologically in the doctrine of angels and demons is who are angels and demons? They're created beings. And so they don't have sovereignty. They don't have omniscience. They don't have omnipresence. And sometimes we give them more credit than they're, they're due. The only one who has all of that is God. That's why even when we get into some of these conversations of demons, we don't want to be speaking to demons and binding demons and touching demons or we'll be like the sons of Sceva, right? Uh, beaten up and with black eyes but um, we need to be talking to God and, and he is always the one who is sovereign even when we're facing trouble and trial and oppression it gives a sense of clarity to us there's only one throne and he sits on that throne well, yeah that's, that's well said yeah, absolutely um, I think the very little I would add to that uh, yeah. I would just say that you know with um, you know, with the world lying in the power of Satan, First John five, you know, even in that particular passage, instantly came to mind when you when you started speaking is is that even though the world lies in the in the power of Satan, it, that very passage says that, that God keeps us, guards us, holds us. You know, and then in other places of scriptures, you know, nothing can take us out of Christ's hand. And I think when you go through the suffering and the trials of life, you know, God is still sovereign and He's still on His throne, regardless of. The, the trial slash temptation that comes. Yeah, so. Beautiful. I'm not suffering. What does this say about my salvation? It's, a, it's an interesting one in, in relation <laughs> to, again, this, this, this weekend. If I'm not suffering, what does it say about my relationship with God? Well, the, the idea of suffering, first of all, is not something that we seek, you know. Lord, make me suffer. Uh, you don't need to pray like that, okay? Just <laughs> uh, but the promise of God is all who desire to live godly in this world must face, will face persecution. Now, does that mean that every single day and every single minute you're going to be suffering? No. But I think in general, if we live and we stand out for Christ, what, what did Jesus say would happen? The world will hate you. And so I, I would need to have more of a conversation with this person who's asking this question but I, I would just ask you to even examine your life um, in this area of are you really standing out for Christ? Are you really living a life that is salty or have you become just like the world and therefore you're not facing any conflict you know? and so that would be a question that I would ask and um, if you're not suffering right now as a Christian, you will be soon. <laughs> it's part of just God's plan in our lives until we reach the shores of heaven. Yeah, you know, I absolutely agree. I, I think one of the things even, even Sammy and I were talking about uh, just a, I don't know, an hour ago, just kind of things that our professors would say, you know, you can imagine suffering or trials like waves in the sea. You know, you're the kind of coming out of one and then you're going to be going back into one and um, and for and for pastors even to kind of piggyback on our conversation you know pastors a lot of times God has us go through trials so that we can understand the trials of the sheep and um, and so from an individual standpoint you know we're all going to face the trials and suffering and if you are standing up for Christ there will be times where you'll face that tense persecution and there will be times where you know by God's graciousness you're not 
but it, it still will come, and, and there will be a time when you, know, you you will have to face that persecution, that trial. Fantastic. Still on the on the topic of uh, of suffering and trials, uh, would it be okay for us as Christians to say during our, our suffering or our trials that the Lord has afflicted us, or the Lord is afflicting me? Is that something that we could say as Christians? I would say so. Um, that that was what Jeremiah recognized in in Lamentations. Is it not from the hand of the Lord that we should accept both good and even calamity? Uh, you know that list that uh, Chad had up earlier uh, is important. Uh, not all suffering is because of personal sin, so we don't need to always get into this. You know, trying to get on a witch hunt, uh, but. Uh, suffering is, is given by God, and this is what we can say, look at James chapter 1, to perfect our faith. And that's what we can, we can look at. God, in what way can I grow in my trust in Jesus Christ in this time? And, and, and that is the, the aspiration that we can have. Um, I, would, I would encourage you uh, to read the biographies of, uh, you know, good and godly men that have gone before us. I mean, you can start with Hebrews 11, uh, but then you can even go into men like Spurgeon. You'll be just amazed. Uh, though he doesn't talk about it a lot in his, his sermons, that he suffered much, his wife suffered much. Uh, all the missionaries we were talking about, Carey and others. And I would say in many ways, they, be, they began to do great exploits for God because of the school of suffering. School of hard knocks, you know the yeah. colors are black and blue, right? Yeah. Sorry, a little joke. No, I mean I think I think when you say afflicted, I mean we just talked about in sense the you know, fiery trials. I mean they're they're painful at times, uh, but it's you're right to purify us, to mature us, to test us, and, and so yeah, they they can and will be you know painful at times. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, another question: uh, How would you? concisely define what's a what's a good definition of the kingdom of god if someone asked you uh, what does the kingdom of god mean what is a, a good definition of that term yeah and you, you can open up a whole you know and this this is where even good and godly christians have has have disagreements uh, uh for me briefly sometimes i think one of the important things to start off with is don't talk about the kingdom without the king. And the king is Jesus, and you start with Psalm 2, and then you even look at Matthew uh, 28, where Jesus even says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I, I think people need to start there before getting into go into all the world. Um, just a couple of things, though. Uh, when you recognize that Jesus is the king, and that's the starting point of the kingdom. Don't define a kingdom without a king. You begin to realize that this is what I... I, I haven't talked to Chad about this, and if he disagrees with me, that would be fun. Uh, but <laughs> that there is, a, I would say, an already, and then a, a not yet. Um, and that would be Romans 14. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and joy and peace, and so there are some aspects of the king that we begin to see in terms of his spiritual rule in our hearts and in our lives. But then there's a not yet, and that is where he's going to set up a physical kingdom and hand over to God. And you see that in Revelation 20 and Revelation uh, 21 and, and following. So that that would be my uh, simple approach. And I know there's more complex ways to look at it, but 
we have to look forward to some yeah, things and absolutely. we get to experience some things now. No, no, I would. Uh, Sammy and I are on the same page on that. You know, oh, you, good. You know, you, you, <laughs> you, you, you know, have the, the spiritual aspects of the kingdom. You know, it, it's with with Christ and His kingdom is not of this world, and the rule of Jesus and us us sharing the gospel. We're building the kingdom, but there's a there's an aspect of that kingdom, the the kingdom of our Christ. He will come and rule in a literal kingdom. Uh, the kingdom is not. In, uh, been initiated yet, and so yeah, I, I would agree, agree with your statements there as well. Yeah. Cool. In relation to to the scriptures, to the Bible as a whole, uh, can we, uh, as Christians, claim every promise in the scriptures? Can we? Uh, what specific promises apply to us? How, how do how do we tell what promises apply to us and, and don't apply to us? Can we claim every promise in the scriptures? Yeah, that's that's a, a good one, especially as you're getting into the Old Testament. Uh, I would answer with uh, no, um, and I would start off with saying that there are some distinctions between Israel and the church, and uh, I think just quite obviously, you know, without making it just too complex, that Israel was a nation and Israel was uh, physical, and and therefore there were a lot of physical promises uh, given to them, and even physical curses given to them. But the church, on the other hand, is a spiritual entity. And even this can be a very uh, complex and debated thing. But just looking at the obvious sense of scripture, um, there is some things that are continuous and some things that are discontinuous. Um, So there have been books and tomes and debates on this. But Paul kind of clarifies on this right where he says, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So you can, you, you can start with, uh, I would say maybe a good grid is start with the New Testament before you go to the Old Testament and use that to help you uh, to think through uh, the promises of God. <laughs> that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. you know, I think that's, actually I think that's a great answer. You know, you, you want to start in the New Testament. We're New Testament, we're, sorry, we're New Covenant people. Right? We're, we're members of the new covenant. There's an old covenant. It's called the Old Testament. And I think it's important to understand that there is a distinction between the church and Israel when you read promises. Um, I made a joke to Alex earlier about the prayer of Jabez, but I think that's before his time, um, where you, know, you take a, a particular prayer out of the Old Testament and you claim it as your own. Um, you, know, you have to look at the, the promises God gave to the nation of Israel, and those promises are distinct. and and large parts of them are unfulfilled. And that's what we'll have. Those, the fulfillment will be when Christ returns rule in his millennial kingdom. Um, so I, I, think, I think his answer, I think Sammy's answer is the best, is, is start in the New Testament. Start with the ones that are specifically made to the church in the New Covenant. So, yeah. Cool. As Christians today, how are we to care for the needy in a, in a welfare State Again, going back to what you were saying today, Sammy, how do we care for the needy in a welfare state? Yeah, I, I think that's good. Again, keeping the separation between church and state, ultimately what the state does, leave it in the hands of God. And you don't need to go on a campaign against the state. But what we can do is personally, as we help the poor and the destitute, uh, as someone has said, you don't uh, give them fish, but you teach them how to fish. Uh, because uh, it's so short-sighted to just give people the dole, right? Uh, so even when you're helping the poor 
and there can be poor in the church, there can be even poor that you're evangelizing, you, if, you, if you just give them things, actually you're, you're spiritually being a detriment in their lives. You're teaching them to be lazy. And so we need to teach them how to work hard. Uh, and that's part of the gospel. Uh, that's what I would say. If a man does not work, he should not eat. And so we need to teach them that that's love. You know? So these are big issues that, that come up, uh, even in our personal charity. And we need to have personal charity. But it needs to be tempered by not just handing out things. This has been the great mistake in missions. You know? And they, they said a lot of people in Asia were just rice Christians because they were just given rice and, and things. And there's been detriment to the gospel in that sense because once the rice stops, then the Christianity stops. So you want to be just careful of that even here in, in Australia. It doesn't matter where you are. Yeah, I, no, I agree totally. I, I think also, um, kind of in addition to that, to piggyback as well, is you know we, we are told to have hospitality. And, and I think, especially when you're looking at those who are in need in the church, I think that's the ministry of the church. Um, you look at those in the church that are the destitute, the widows, the orphans, if they're those within the body, you know, that, that's, that's our primary responsibility, first and foremost, is to, is to help each other. And so if there's that need in the body, I think... I think it's a detriment to us to say, oh, well, the government's going to take care of them. Um, but I, I'm, hospitality and our love for each other is demonstrated in how we, how we treat each other. And so from, from a church standpoint, uh, we need to be willing to be generous, whether it's financial and time and help uh, with those that are in less in need. Um, but then uh, I agree with Sammy when you're looking it's, at it from It's a, interesting, a in, like First yeah. Timothy 5 even, uh, thinking about widows, like in Ruth, Paul even gives the instruction that don't put them on the list. So there was a list right. where the church was involved in helping widows. But he said, don't put them on the list unless they're, they're older. If they're young, then they can work. Right. And don't put them on the list unless they prove themselves in faithfulness and in service. And, and then if they're in their old age and they can't work as much, then we help them, you know. But it's always that, that sense of proving themselves first as those that aren't lazy. Uh, before we help. Fantastic. Um, counting the costs, how much should this message be part of uh, evangelism towards the unknown? Yeah, you know, and this goes back to um, the whole issue of easy believism uh, that John MacArthur, have you heard of John MacArthur, uh, has, has addressed in... Uh, couple of books, uh, The Gospel According to Jesus and uh, Faith Works. And so I would encourage you to read that. But um, uh, basically, um, it comes back to this issue, is that when we believe in Christ, there needs to be this, this dual aspect of not just faith in Jesus, but also repentance. And faith would be where you turn your your face or your head towards Christ in commitment, but you can't do that unless you turn in repentance your tail against sin, you know? And it's not like these two things are different, but they have to be the same thing. And unfortunately, in evangelism now, uh, I think because of the desire to have numbers, people have diminished repentance and counting the cost and just said, pray this prayer. Sometimes they'll even make a prayer that you can parrot up. Jesus, Jesus, I believe in you. You died for my sins. Amen. Hallelujah. You're getting baptized. Here's your certificate. They don't even understand what they've done. And you've really made them more of a son of hell than they were before. You know? um, 
So just that whole sinner's prayer thing and all of that was driven not by the scriptures, but by a desire to see more sort of people in the fold through our own efforts. But you notice what Naomi did? She almost was driving them away. That's what Jesus did even. Unless you hate father and mother, you cannot be my disciple. So because we believe faith is a gift from God, we don't try to make it easy. Uh, but we, we present it for the reality that it is, and then we wait for God to bring that faith into their lives. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where when you're, when you're sharing the gospel, you know, you're sharing, you're sharing God's grace, but you're also pointing out the fact that it's, it's going to cost you something. You know, from a from a New Testament standpoint, you're talking about ostracism. You're talking about well, even even modern cultures. You're ostracism. You're talking about rejection by family. You're talking about you know losing you know things that you have, but for the sake of a long term gain. Obviously, the gain is Christ and eternal eternal life. Um, you know, I come from that kind of background where you know it was like you say a prayer and you and you're, you're automatically saved and you have that false doctrine of once saved always saved. Not perseverance of the saints, but I can say a prayer and I'm good. And, and I watched um, I watched too many people buy into that and just, and delude themselves into thinking they were believers and they could live exactly how they wanted to and, and just like the world with a false assurance that, oh, I'm, I'm a Christian, I said a prayer. And, and so for them, you want to encourage people to, hey, like, look at what it's going to cost you, right? It's going to be fiery, and you'll be afflicted, and you're, you're going to suffer for the Lord, right? But that, that knowledge and understanding comes, you know, as the Holy Spirit's working in their hearts and giving them faith and helping them understand. So, yeah, I, I, think, I think it's important in evangelism to point that out, like this, this is part of the Christian life. Uh, but ultimately, what we have now pales to what we'll have in the future. So. Fantastic. Just as we close off, uh, any books that you guys are, are reading at the moment uh, in your own quiet time or personal time or, or perhaps books that uh, you found really helpful uh, of late? Anything uh, that perhaps you can, you can recommend to, uh, to someone looking for, for something uh, to read outside of the Scriptures, obviously? Um, anything in particular for you, Sammy? Yeah, you know, but thinking back to some of these questions, um, the sovereignty of God and evangelism, I would recommend uh, J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, he shows how uh, election is the fuel that lights evangelism on fire. Uh, so that would be a good book. Uh, thinking about humility and repentance, I would recommend Thomas Watson, The Doctrine of Repentance. He, he writes with just images and colors. One of my favorite quotes from that book is, there's no rowing to the shores of heaven except upon the daily tears of penitence. And I can just imagine that, you know, crying tears of repentance for God and just rowing on that. And, and he develops that in his, in his book. So those are a couple of good books, I mean, uh, that I would recommend. I, I would say... Um Oh, sorry, I'm trying to think of the exact title. It's uh, Sovereignty of God in Suffering by uh, John Piper. And it's, it's a great book. He addresses all the issues about suffering. In fact, there's a great chapter in there when John Piper was diagnosed with prostate cancer. And he, makes, he talks about glorifying God in your cancer. I, I think it's one of the most powerful chapters I've read in a book on suffering. Uh, very personable. So I think that's a great book. Um, I'm reading a book on, by Lewis Bailey called The Practice of Piety. 
And uh, I, I've, I've really enjoyed it. He has some, some great language, uh, just classic Puritan language on, uh, on heaven and hell and uh, God's, um, God, what awaits the believer, what awaits the unbeliever. So it's, it's good stuff. Fantastic. Well, thank you both. Both men. We got through all those. You got questions? through. Wow, I didn't you think we would. You got through, Sammy. Yeah. Well done. <laughs> now, thank you, thank you both for your for your ministry over the weekend, Sammy, especially um, all the hard work and preparation that you've uh, you've put in for for this weekend. And we look forward to the close of that tomorrow. Many people uh, won't be able to join us tomorrow uh, as they'll be heading back to their own churches. But but thank you for uh, making the time to to come and fellowship with us. Uh, here at New Community Church, and we look forward once again to to meeting back together next year for for Phil Johnson. Uh, just be uh, watching your email addresses for that, and uh, that will you'll get you'll be getting something shortly with regards to to the dates for that. But uh, but in the meantime, Sammy, thank you uh, very much. We we really appreciate your your ministry to us, and we'll be continuing to pray for you and and for Nicole as you as you minister in in the church and also at uh, at PTS. Um, Thank you very much for, uh, for making the time to, to come down and, and speak to us uh, this weekend. Yeah, I just want to thank, thank you. And thank, thank you all for just uh, your encouragement and patience. I've enjoyed just the little snippets of conversation I've had with so many of you and uh, just the way in which uh, you've been an encouragement even as you've been sharing the stories of how God is working in your life. And like you were saying, Alex, uh, prayer is so important. William Carey said when he was going out uh, into India that I go to mine gold, the souls of men, uh, but the important issue is that you hold the ropes in prayer. Um, and that's as, as equally important because we believe in the sovereignty of God. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thank you, Sammy. Chad, I was just wondering if you could uh, pray off for, uh, for Sammy as we close off today before we head into our evening meal. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the opportunity you've given us today to hear the proclamation of your word. Father, we know that your word will not return void as it works in our hearts and our lives. Lord, convict us of the areas in our lives that are just unacceptable to you, Father, that the areas where we're not loving you enough or not loving others as we should. Father, I pray that we would just use the things that we've learned today to to glorify you, I pray that you would be honored in our speech, our, our actions, as we treat our families, as we treat others. Help us to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel. And I just thank you so much for my brother Sammy, and thank you for his time and effort that he spent. Uh, I just pray for his ministry, that you continue to bless him, guide him, give him wisdom. Help him to be a, a good father, a good husband, a faithful minister of the word. Lord, I pray for those here that go with us tonight, that we'd glorify God and glorify you in all the things that we do and say in Jesus' name. Amen.